Old Testament survey, Ezra notes are going around. Two pages on Ezra because I wanted to print out the the timeline there. Um, so you see the timeline at the bottom of the first page going on to the second. We'll look at that on the slides up here. But with Ezra, it's very difficult to figure out what's happening. And I think it's better just to go through it in this timeline. So that's how we'll approach the book uh, today and not so much through the outline. Let me open in prayer and we'll get started. God, we love your holy word, even the historical sections of the Old Testament. We just love the fact that you have recorded these things for us. That you have given us all things that we need for growth and holiness. And we can look back to your people Israel and see the mistakes they made. And see what you told them to do. How you promised restoration. And how you promised judgment if they continued in sin. So I pray as we, as we see in the book of Ezra and even Nehemiah next week. That you would show us this great hope that you do fulfill your promises, and there's even more yet to come. Impress that upon our hearts and minds today. In Christ's name, amen. Ezra. Who is Ezra? Before we get too far, don't look at your notes. Who is Ezra? He. He was Hebrew, yes. Who was he? You should read the Bible. Who was Ezra? A priest? Scribe? Priest, same thing, similar, overlapping, yeah. We should remember Ezra as a priest who probably wrote the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. But more on that in a bit. So the book, this one is named after him because he is the main character starting in chapter 7. But one of the hard things about Ezra is he doesn't actually show up until chapter 7 and a lot has already gone on in chapters 1 through 6. So in Hebrew, we're, we're going to match up with the Hebrew now in English. We haven't been doing that much in our English translations. But now, the name of the book in Hebrew is Ezra. And so we're following that. The, uh, the Greek translation, which is still followed today by the Eastern Orthodox Church, and even to some extent the Russian Orthodox Church, it's called Estrus B or Beta. That's a very interesting story. We'll look at a little bit later. What happened to Alpha? What happened to the first one? If, if this is the second one, Beta, then what do they do with the first one? And what is the first one? The Vulgate, that's in Latin. That's what the Catholic Church bases their Bible on, even their English translations based on the Latin Vulgate. This is called First Estrus, which means in their mind there's going to be more than one book of Ezra. Estrus is just Latin for Ezra. Well, who wrote the book? Sometimes that can be helpful to us, but sometimes we don't know, particularly with these Old Testament books. Our best guess, my best guess, I would say Ezra probably, 99%, uh, seems like he wrote it. If you go to chapter 7, verse 1. Now, after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, and then he goes through his genealogy there. Skip down to verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. So it seems like this is written from Ezra's standpoint. He's gone back and recorded everything that's happened since they were able to come back from Babylon, starting in chapter 1. And then he, 
he comes into the story in chapter 7. So there, though, it's talking about him in the, in the third person, which is not unheard of in the Bible. Moses talks about himself in the third person all the time. He even says Moses was the most humble man, um, which people use as a reason to say he didn't write it. But if it's true, you know, it's true. And so he can, he can say that. Um, seven, look at seven, chapter seven, verse 27. But now we have these first person. Uh, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me. So he's, if this, is, this is Ezra's prayer here. To me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So it could be some other author recording Ezra's prayer, but it seems like if we take that and the idea that the whole book is about Ezra, and that Ezra probably wrote Nehemiah as well, I'm going with Ezra, but I'm not going to be dogmatic. I'm not going to conduct any church discipline on you if you disagree. You can think that it's someone else, although there's not really another named person that could be so you just have to throw out something like the author. Yeah, it's it's not extremely important. It can be helpful if we're trying to determine what the author is saying and why it's in scripture. Uh, but yeah, it's not it's not going to make or break our interpretation. Uh, but when you think about Genesis and who wrote it, the more challenged the book is, and the more people think it's not real or shouldn't be in the Bible the more authorship becomes an important issue. And particularly in the New Testament, because so much of the doctrine there is challenged by liberals. What are the dates? Not the date it was written, but the date of events that it covers. It covers, starting in chapter 1, the decree of Cyrus. Cyrus is the king of Persia. So it starts with that decree, and that's in 538 B.C. We'll look at a timeline in a second. And it goes all the way to the second governorship, of Nehemiah. That's at the end of the book of Nehemiah. So from Ezra, the beginning, till the end of Nehemiah, because I think these are two books that should be one book. Well, we'll come to that next week. Uh, that is 538 to 430 BC. You count backwards in BC, right? We're counting down to the birth of Christ. So what is that? About 100 years. This covers about 100 years. Obviously, Ezra didn't live 100 years, but he's going back and recording some things that happened before his lifetime. So where are we? Let's just stop and review where we're at in the big scheme of things in our Old Testament survey. We're surveying the books of the Old Testament. We started with what? Genesis. Good. We started with Genesis and we went all the way through book by book. And we've seen how God chose Israel. We saw how he chose Abraham and formed a nation and brought them out of bondage from Egypt into the land. He gave them what he said. That happens in uh, Joshua. What happened before Joshua? Deuteronomy. He gave them the law once again, the same law that he gave in Exodus. He told them to live by that law and things would go well. And if they didn't live by that law, things would go poorly. They would be judged. And so we see the rise of David as king. And then after that, what happens? David's a great king in many respects. The land is blessed. Solomon gets quite a bit as well as far as blessings go. But what happens with Solomon? 
What's his, what's his great sin? Solomon's great sin. What did he do? Idolatry. He married pagan women, hundreds of them, and brought in idolatry, let them set up their hills of worship, their temples on the hillsides, and the people started worshiping false gods. So God sent prophet after prophet. We haven't gotten to the prophets yet, but he sends all these prophets to warn them, return to the law, return to the Lord, return to obey the scriptures that God has given you, the the law of God, the teaching that he gave to Moses. They refuse, they refuse. We saw up and down with the kings in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Uh, a few good ones, mostly bad ones. It kept getting worse and worse. What happened? God said, "Don't worry about it." He said, "It's time." And then he sent more prophets to warn them to repent. And then he said, "Here comes Babylon." And they destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple, and most of the people were taken to Babylon and held there in captivity for 70 years. Which means if, if you were taken there, you're probably going to die in captivity and never see the homeland again, never see the promised land, never see the temple rebuilt. So we've been seeing that pattern all the way through the end of Second Chronicles, which we stopped last week on Second Chronicles. And now we start Ezra. So what's going to happen in Ezra and Nehemiah? 70 years is up, and they're coming back to the land, and they're going to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. So this is a fulfillment, a partial fulfillment of God's promises. He still has more promises to fulfill, of course. So here's what I was talking about with the, uh, let me get my iPad so I can draw here. Hopefully you can see that. I don't think that's in your notes. These are the different traditions and how they develop. You might not think this is all that interesting, but you might be nerdy like me and, and think it is, right? Sometimes we ask, why does it matter? That's a good question. And it matters on different levels. Does, does anything we're saying today matter with regards to salvation and the gospel? Not really, other than the fact that this is God's word and should be in the Bible, right? No, one, no one's going to fall out of salvation. That's not possible. Let's just play for a minute. No one's going to lose their salvation because they don't understand the book of Ezra. So it doesn't matter in that regard. But for you guys that are here, this is what kind of class? An equipping class. So I'm trying to equip you to better understand Scripture so that you can learn from it and apply it in your life. So does this nerdy stuff matter? Probably not to most of us, but it's fun. So we're going to look at it. Okay, so I already talked about the, this is the the Septuagint's Greek. Can you all see that? Got to sit closer if you can't see it on uh, class time here. Septuagint's Greek, and that's Latin. So why does that matter? The Roman Catholics use the Latin Bible today, and the, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church uses the Greek Bible. And much of our English layout of our Bibles comes from that Greek Bible called the Septuagint. These are Roman numerals that mean 70, because supposedly 70 people translated it in 70 years. Probably a myth, but... And then what's this MT? MT is the Hebrew. I'll just put H there for Hebrew. Hebrew. Um, So the Hebrew is what we want because it's the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. New Testament written in Greek. So if you're going to have a manuscript, do you want the original Hebrew, an old version of the Greek translation, or an old Latin translation? They can all be helpful, but you want 
the Hebrew one if you can get it. So in Hebrew, Ezra and Nehemiah are together. They are one book. We're going to spend a lot of time next week talking about why they should be viewed as one book with two sections. It's not that way in our Bibles. It is that way in the Hebrew Bible. They've always thought that way. Modern Hebrew translations divided up into two different sections with two different names, but it was one book. So from Ezra 1 to the end of Nehemiah, they saw that as one book. In Jesus' day, it would have been considered one book. And we have good evidence of that. Now, the Greeks come along and they say, well, we have lots of information. We're going to make two, Ezra Beta and Ezra Alpha. So if you're Greek, that's just a way to number it. Number one, number two. Our book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they call Estrus Beta. What happened to A? Well, it's not in the Hebrew. It's not in the Masoretic text. None of these last ones are on the right, which means it shouldn't be in the Bible. That's why it's not in our Bible. You have one book of Ezra, you don't have two. You don't have Ezra A and Ezra B. You don't have Ezra 1 and Ezra 2, right? First Ezra, second Ezra. What is Estrus Alpha? A bunch of stories compiled together. Pieces of the book of Ezra, pieces of Second Chronicles, all thrown together with lots of changes. So early Christians said, that's not scripture, get that thing out of here. So it's gone. But the Latin translation came along and said, no, we like it. So the Catholics have it as part of the Apocrypha. And then they also have a fourth one right here. So they just decided to outdo us all and have four different books of Ezra. So it's very interesting. Uh, footnotes down here um, refer back to this. So number one and two, that's the actual books we have in our Bible. Okay, So we have this right here, Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, Column three, a Greek work containing... As I said, Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, parts of everything. Uh, and then number four, that's fourth Ezra in the Catholic Bible today. It's a composite apocalyptic work. talks about the end times. Originally in Greek, but now in Latin. So this is important because if you're talking to someone who is Roman Catholic, and you say, go to, go to the book of Ezra, I want to show you what Ezra was called to do. What might they say to you? Which Ezra? Which Ezra are you talking about? First Ezra, second Ezra, third Ezra, fourth Ezra. Okay? So it's important to know that. And depending on which English translation they have of their Latin, uh, it, it might be different. But anyway, just be aware that there are multiple books that they consider Scripture that we do not as Protestants. We don't think they're inspired by God, and we don't think God had anyone write those. All right, let's talk a little bit about some observations in Ezra. I've already showed you where Ezra uses the first person. That happens again in chapter 9. And also, even though we just, you guys just told me the Old Testament's in Hebrew, look what we have here. Is that Hebrew? That's Aramaic, very close to Hebrew. It's much closer to Hebrew than English is to Hebrew. But there are some sections in Aramaic. What's Aramaic? Who, who spoke Aramaic at this time? People that were around the time, around the area of Babylon and the Persian Empire. So Aramaic is the Babylonian language, essentially. And when the Persians come in and take over, they leave the administrative language in place. 
And so turn to Ezra 4, verse 8. Why do you think that Ezra would leave that in Aramaic and that God would have us keep Aramaic in the Old Testament? Now this is a translation from the Aramaic, but 4, 8. Rehemim, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem. Now go to 7.12. Artaxerxes, the king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace. So this is a, verse 11. This is a copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest. Why do we still have Aramaic in our, if you were to roll out your, Hebrew manuscript. Why would you see Aramaic there? Exact copy of the letter. Yeah, and the official language of the kingdom. This is the real deal. This happened really in history, didn't it? This is an actual letter going to the king from someone and coming from the king to Ezra. This is amazing. This is history. This is real. And anybody who studies Hebrew doesn't have to take much of a jump to to learn the Aramaic. So, there's a couple of sections here, and then there's also some in Daniel. Why would Daniel have a section of Aramaic? Daniel's in Babylon. Things are being written and spoken and said that he's recording in Aramaic. This is the official language. And anybody who comes back from Babylon can speak Aramaic. What did Jesus speak? Many, I think he spoke all of these that we're talking about, but uh, he spoke Aramaic. What did people in Galilee speak? Aramaic. It's very similar to Hebrew, but it's what they learned in captivity. So if you were to show up in Galilee in Jesus' time, you would hear a lot more Aramaic than you would Hebrew. You would hear Hebrew in the synagogue. You would hear Hebrew in the temple. You would hear Hebrew when they read the Bible. But Aramaic would be day-to-day language and also some Greek in Jesus' day. So what's the theme? What's the major point of Ezra? Rebuild the temple and the people. The people need to come back, especially the priests. You can't have a temple without priests. And the temple has to be rebuilt. It's been completely destroyed. It's been leveled. There's nothing left. How can you truly do the sacrifices and worship God in Israel in ancient times without the temple? So it's got to be rebuilt. That's what Ezra is going to go back and oversee. Now let's just open it up. This is very dense. This is your scholarly Reason that it's in our Bibles. Let's walk through it. Yahweh. Who's Yahweh again? Personal name of God, right? The God of the Old Testament. Our, our translations say Lord in all caps, but it's not Lord as in Master. This is God's name for, for the Israelites. Yahweh. He had been as loyal to the Abrahamic covenant in the restoration of Israel as he had previously been in Israel's history. You remember what he said to Abraham? I will bless you. I will give you this land. I will make you as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in heaven. Well, how can that be, God? We're sitting here in captivity. We can't even worship you rightly. We're basically slaves in Babylon. How can that be? Well, he's going to bring them back. And this book is about that. He's going to restore them. Yet, post-exilic Israel... There's a very academic word. This is a class. I'm not going to say post-exilic and probably in my sermons, but this is a class. I want you to know some academic language. What is post-exilic? Post means what? After. Exilic means exile. So it's not hard. Post-exilic means 
after the exile, Israel after the exile, had been as disobedient to the Mosaic Covenant as the previous generations of Israel. That's what we're going to see in Ezra. That's what we're going to see in Nehemiah. Even though they have the temple again, even though they're back in the land, idolatry is done with, but the sin of the heart has not been dealt with. They don't have a perfect king. They don't have a Messiah. And they're still struggling with sin. Thus, the full blessings promised, by the time we get to Nehemiah, the end of it, the full blessings God promised in that Abrahamic covenant has not yet come in Israel's immediate past, but they're still looking forward to it. So this is important. It's going to tell us, Ezra's going to tell us, and Nehemiah's going to tell us what happens when they come back, how they rebuild. What, how do we get from Babylon to Jesus' day? Well, Ezra and Nehemiah is part of that story. But don't think just because they're back and they have a temple that all is well, that they can just be blessed and be perfect. They are still struggling. We're going to see that intermarriage with pagan wives is a big issue. And these Jewish men cannot keep from grabbing pagan women and marrying them. And that is against God's law in the Old Testament. They're going to struggle with that. Even when Nehemiah comes back, he's going to be very upset with them for that. So they're looking for the king. They're looking for the perfect one. Outline, two parts. First six chapters here of Ezra. It's the return and reconstruction under Zerubbabel. Or you could just say point one is the temple. First six chapters are about the temple. Second set, chapter 7 through 10, the return and reform under Ezra, or the teacher. So they start the temple, and then they need a man to come back and lead them in worship and teach them the law of God, the Bible. So we have this building. What do we do with it? Who knows the Bible? It's not like they all came back with their own scrolls of Scripture. Everybody could just pull out a scroll. Those things were very expensive. Very expensive. Only the priests had the scrolls. We need some priests. We have a temple being built. We need some priests to come back and help us. Now you see my star there. Between the end of 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, there's a 57-year gap. Remember, Ezra is not included in chapters 1 through 6. He comes in at 7. Between 6 and 7, there's a 57-year gap. That's where the book of Esther fits in. So when we get to Esther, just remember that. You all always wonder, where does Esther fit in between Ezra 6 and 7? The Persian Empire. Key chapters, we'll go through these in a moment. Chapter 1 is the decree of Cyrus allowing the return. Uh, many Israelites prepare to go. 3, they lay the foundation of the temple and complete it. They have a ceremony. 7 through 9 talks about Ezra coming, coming back in his prayer in chapter 9. And then 10 is repentance of the people who had married into paganism. So what's the last chapter of Ezra? 10. How are we ending just in the book of Ezra? Temple's good. We're, we're happy to be back in the land. Oh, look, we have priests and a great scribe. The, the best scribe of the day, Ezra, to teach us. Everything's going to be great, right? Paganism. The book of Ezra ends on Marriage to pagan women. And that's not for evangelistic purposes. People say today, it's okay if a believer marries an unbeliever for evangelistic purposes. It wasn't okay then, and it's not okay in the New Testament either. But 
that's a topic for, for another day. Not speaking of people who get saved when they're married to an unbeliever, but speaking of those who already saved are not to marry into unbelief. Let's go to 4.3. So, key verses. These are subjective, of course. I just have a few listed. Uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua reject the help of the Samaritans. So 4.3. But Zerubbabel and, and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers of households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Why is that important? We don't need your help to build God's temple. You pagans. There's my translation. It would be like if we're planting a church here and we ask the Mormons to come and help us. Not with the building, but with actually growing the body of Christ. And we invited the Mormons into Jehovah's Witnesses. Or let's just say they came over and wanted to help us. This would be a, a good attitude, I think, to have. Uh, we don't want your help, he says, because who are the Samaritans? Are they worshiping the one true God? They think they do, but they're actually not. Jesus, you know, that woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, she says, oh, well, we worship God like this. And he says what? You worship what you do not know. But there's a time coming. And then he goes on to talk about himself. So the Samaritans were people brought in, pagan nations brought in, dumped there to live by the Assyrians, and then they thought they were worshiping the same God as the Jews. Uh, let's go to 7.10 before we go to 10.9. Go to 7.10. Let's just start up in verse 1 to get the context of, of uh, Ezra now. And now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So there's a lot of history in this book. This is a real event. This is a real person. Um, Artaxerxes was real. We can trace him in other ways. And Ezra was a real person. Uh, Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meroth, a son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishu, son of Phineas. Now you should get back to somebody you know, Phineas in Numbers son of Eleazar, who was the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Aaron, Moses' brother. Yeah, just be thankful I didn't ask anybody to read those verses, okay? This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. A scribe is someone who, who has studied the word, the, the word of God. He studied the law of God. He can write out things if he needs to, letters and stuff to make money. But he knows the word of God more than anyone else. Which the Lord God of Israel had given to Moses. And the king, that's Cyrus, uh, Artaxerxes, sorry, granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord, his God, was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So some of the Israelites have been back already. They already went back in chapter 1. 
They've started to build the temple. They completed the temple. Now they need priests. They need temple servants. They need Levites. Ezra's going back. The king at the time lets him go from Persia. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king, King Artaxerxes. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. Because the good hand of his God was upon him. So all this has happened because of God. Now here's the key verse. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is a great verse for anyone who wants to study the Bible and especially if you want to teach the Bible. First, he said his heart was on the study of it. You have to know what's there before you can do anything with it. Then what does he say he did? Was he just a hearer of the word? A reader of the word? It was a doer of the word. Practice it. It says, not just study, but practice. And then what's he going to do with it? He's going to teach it. Teach all of God's statutes, all of God's ordinances. They want to obey their God. They just don't know what to do. And Ezra's going to go back and teach them. He spent his whole life basically studying the law, practicing it himself. Now he's going to teach others. All right, go to 10.9. So this is where we have the, the end of Ezra here, where the end of the book where people are marrying pagan wives. And he tells, he's going to tell them to put away their foreign wives. And most of them agree to do so to avoid God's wrath. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. So he tells them, you need to come. You need to come for this meeting. We're going to have a little, we're going to have a little church discipline meeting. It was the ninth month, the 20th of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. So there's heavy rain coming down upon them. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have been unfaithful. Unfaithful to who? God. Why? Because he told, he told them, don't do this. What happened with Solomon? He married pagan women. And he let them set up their little idols in the land. They've come back and they said, we don't want anything to do with idolatry. And they don't have a problem with idolatry. But look what they're doing. Starting all over again. Marrying pagan women. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers, and do his will, and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land, and from foreign wives. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right, as you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people. It is the rainy season, and we're not able to stand in the open. Nor can the task be done in one or two days, but we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly. Let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times, together with the elders and judges of each city, until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. God's very upset. This is no small matter. He's brought them back. He's given them a second chance, if you want to use that term. It's not really a second chance because it's all in the plan of God. But he's given them another opportunity to restore worship to Israel. 
And look what they've done. He's very upset. Verse 15, only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jezreah, the son of Tikva, opposed this, with Meshulam and Shabbatai and the Levite supporting them. So there were some who didn't do it. They said, we're not going to. Now, that does bring up a question about divorce. That's what they're doing here. They're divorcing their pagan wives. And if, if God permits divorce, which he does, we know that in the time of Moses, we see that here in Ezra, uh, we see that in the New Testament with Jesus, but only under very specific conditions. And so it's not that divorce is great. It's not that God says, oh, be divorced and be blessed and have a wonderful life. They, may, they probably have children with these women. I think we will see that over in Nehemiah because the same problem is going to come back up. Does it say children? Oh yeah, the last verse. All these had married foreign wives and some of them had wives by whom they had children. doesn't say they weren't going to be responsible for those children. They weren't going to financially support them. We don't know the specifics of how it worked out in the end. But God is telling them to separate. And that's divorce. So, maybe when we get to Nehemiah, we'll get into a bit more of the theology of divorce and, and when the couple of exceptions that Jesus gives for it. But God does hate divorce. Key people. Cyrus, Persian king who allowed the Jews to return and rebuild the temple. I like Cyrus in the Bible. There's no indication that he was saved, but he really cares for God's people. He sees himself in the Bible, and he's amazed, and he says, you've got to go back, go. Ezra, Ezra's a priest, Ezra's a scribe, Ezra's a great reformer. He's an expert in the law. And under his leadership, the children of Israel put away their foreign wives. And then Joshua, this is not Joshua from the book of Joshua. Joshua from the book of Joshua is long dead. He's been dead for a long time, almost a thousand years. This is Joshua the high priest at that time who came back with him and he aided the governor, Zerubbabel, in rebuilding the altar and the temple. So let's work through it in a chronological order here, according to your chart. So 538 B.C., Cyrus, the king of Persia, Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the one who conquered Babylon. In the book of Daniel, the Persians come in and they conquer Babylon. You remember the handwriting on the wall? You know that whole incident? The handwriting on the wall, even this night, your kingdom will be taken away from you. That's Cyrus coming in. Now he's called Darius in Daniel. Darius just means the royal one, talking about a king's title. But it's Cyrus. We know this, and it starts off here in Ezra with that man in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah say? Jeremiah said, 70 years in captivity. He's the one who gave the number 70. 70 years in captivity. And so they knew. They were counting down. It's 70 years. Is it time to go back? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, 
which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, whatever place may live, let the men of the place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with free will offering in the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So go back. All of you Jews can go back now. You're free to go back to the land. And all you Persians, it would be a good idea to bless them with some silver and gold and other nice items. This is amazing. This guy, he probably believes that God is just one of the many gods, maybe even the highest God. But look at God's providence here. Look at God's sovereignty. Cyrus was spoken of by name in the book of Isaiah. By name. Isaiah happening hundreds, about two, three hundred years before this event. So it wouldn't surprise me if some Hebrew, maybe Ezra, or not Ezra, he's not born yet, uh, some Hebrew at the time, Daniel, says, look, hey Cyrus, you're mentioned by name in the book of Isaiah. Look what it says you're going to do. And Cyrus says, hey, I'm going to do that. There's my name right there. This is the God of heaven. It says he gave me all these kingdoms to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to send them back. That's speculation, but Daniel is his most trusted advisor. Verse 5, Then the heads of the fathers of the household of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose. So Judah, Benjamin, priests, Levites. Then even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up. So within them, they want to go. They want to rebuild. All those about them encouraged them, and people gave them silver, gold, goods, cattle, valuables. Cyrus brings out the articles, the articles of the household of God. Some of them had been brought out by Belteshazzar, and they had caused the whole writing on the wall incident. And God was not pleased with that. So they put them back in the vault. Persians hadn't touched them. Cyrus brings them out and gives them. Here, go back. Take the gold. Take the furniture for the temple. The priests go back in chapter 2 here. So they return the next year, 537. Or it could be 536, depending on which kind of dating that you use. That's what the little slash means there. So they return under Shesh Bazaar. 1-5. Okay, we already read 1-5. Uh, Shesh Bazar is the governor of this new territory, or it's been there for a while, but the Jews are going to go back under his rule, Shesh Bazar. Probably a Persian ruler sent by Cyrus to go with them. The altar's built. The celebration of tabernacles occurs. So you can just skim through these next few chapters here. Chapter 3, you see my, my title there says, Altar and Sacrifices are Restored. 3.8, temple restoration begins. But there's going to be problems. The work on the temple is going to be stopped. Look at chapter 4. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel. And the heads of the fathers' households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. And this is the verse we just read. Zerubbabel and Jeshua tell them, go, get away. We're not helping us. This is our God. We've been sent with a task. We're going to rebuild it. 
So it does stop for a while because they send a letter to King Artaxerxes. He's a little bit confused on what's happening. Tells him to stop. So it stops by the end of chapter 4. In chapter 5, the temple building resumes. Prophets Haggai, which we'll look at later, the book of Haggai, and Zechariah, that's the book of Zechariah, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God who was over them. Then Zerubbabel is the governor at this time. He's a Jewish governor now. And he gets them going again with rebuilding the temple. Chapter 6, the temple is completed. Let's skip on down here. So where are we at here? We're just from 538 to when the temple is completed. How long is that? 538 minus 515. Caleb? 538 minus 515. 23 years to build a temple. That's not too bad. That's going to be a much smaller temple. The people who see it who were alive when they saw the previous temple are going to weep. It's very small. It's so small that... When you get to the New Testament, King Herod, Herod the Great, is enlarging the temple. He is making it grand again. But that's okay. God told them to go back and build it. It's not about how big it is. It's about the fact that they can worship him rightly. So 23 years, even with the stopping happening there. Then they run into some more problems. And then there's the issue of the walls in Jerusalem, which is Nehemiah's focus. So Nehemiah is going to overlap a little bit with the book of Ezra. We shouldn't think, book of Ezra stops. Okay, next, Nehemiah. In the Bible, sometimes things are put in certain places for a reason. It's not always chronological, especially chapter 4 of Ezra. I'll show you that hopefully today, maybe next week. All right, continuing on here. Chapter 7, we already read. Ezra shows up. What's his purpose? He is going to proclaim the word of the Lord. But by the end of the book, they're not following God's word and they're uh, marrying pagan women. That's how the book ends. Then Nehemiah 1 will start after that. What's a good commentary for the book of Ezra? I think the best and probably most readable by just about anyone in here would be this one. Uh, Gregory Goswell, Ezra, Nehemiah. It's from the EP study commentary. Problem is it's out of print right now, but you can get it on Logos Bible Software, which is where I got it. But this is the most recommended book, I think, for reform folks reading the book of Ezra. Okay, we got 15 minutes. We'll see if we can get through these interpretive problems. Before we do that, what's the theme of Ezra again? Return from exile. And the focus when they return is to rebuild the temple. That's right, Debbie. Rebuild the temple. So the people are coming back and and they need to be reformed according to the word of God. And the temple has to be built even before that. All right, there's a few issues when you're reading through the book. You probably aren't sitting there looking for these problems, but it is hard to make sense of all these names, all these places, all these kings, all these times. And one of these issues we've already come across, you didn't know it, Shesh Bazaar and Zerubbabel. Is that two names of the same person? Or is that two different men? Now, if you were listening to me, I gave you my view already, but let's look at it a little more carefully. In 1.8, Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithrida, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Prince means ruler. So who's the ruler of Judah at the beginning? Who's going back with them? This guy named 
Sheshbazar. Now he's going to come up in Ezra many times. Again in verse 11 and then in, in chapter 5. Then we don't hear anything else about him. Then we hear about this governor called Zerubbabel. Chapter 2, verse 2. These came with Zerubbabel. Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, and he lists all of these names. So it doesn't say Zerubbabel is the governor yet, but there are people coming with him to go back and rebuild the city. So his name's mentioned early on because he's going to become more important throughout Ezra, throughout Nehemiah. Go to 3.2. Then Jeshua, the son of Josedak and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brothers arose, and they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. So who helped build the altar? Zerubbabel. He's rising up in his leadership here. He goes back. He's a Jew. He goes back. He's rising up in his leadership. 3.8. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, Jeshua, the son of Josedak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests, all who came from the captivity, began to work. They began to restore the temple. Skip to 4.2. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers and the households and said to them, so let's go back to 4.1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord. So this is the Samaritans. Who do they come to? Zerubbabel. He's this leader now. He's seen as a leader by the Samaritans. He's the leader of Jerusalem. Not, not king. There's only one king at the time. That's Cyrus. But Zerubbabel seems to be the leader now. We don't know what happened to Sheshbazar. Go to 5.2. Then Zerubbabel is mentioned again. He arose, began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So he's in charge of rebuilding the temple. He seems to be the leader, what we might call the governor. We'll go over to Nehemiah 7.7. 7. His name's mentioned there in that one. Let's skip to Nehemiah 12.1. Now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel. So Zerubbabel seems to be a leader mentioned all the way through the book of Nehemiah till the end. So I'm going to go with two different men. And the idea is probably that Sheshbazar was a Persian sent back with them and either he gets pulled back to Persia or he dies and then Zerubbabel takes charge. So here's the reasons I'm going with that. Sheshbazar died probably shortly after arriving and was replaced. Sheshbazar was the Shinazar mentioned in 1 Chronicles 3.17 and thus Zerubbabel's uncle. So if he's not Persian then he could be Zerubbabel's uncle if it's the same name there. Or the third option here is he was a Persian official, recognized as governor. And then when Zerubbabel came back, he gets recognized as the leader by the Israelites and later becomes the official governor. Why does this matter? Because you're reading through Ezra and you're trying to put all this together and who's doing what. And it's helpful to kind of know that these are two different people. The first time you read through it, you're not going to probably think about these things. But as you read the Bible more and more, you should be asking questions of the text. Okay, here's a bigger one. This is one that the, the liberals will challenge this book on. And most of these books, like Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. It seems like it doesn't match with the secular 
record. So Ezra 3.1. Now when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. And this is going to go on and talk about how the temple, the altars, rebuilt. So when does that happen? Is that the reign of Cyrus that the temple's rebuilt? Which is the 538? Is it the reign of Darius, which comes later? Or both of them? Both of them. So look at 3.7. And they gave money to the masons, the carpenters, food, oil to the Sidonians, bring cedar wood, all the way down at the end of the verse, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So it seems like it is all about Cyrus, right? Why would we question that? Well, many people wonder, how long did this last? If it lasted 23 years, how do the dates match up? And I want to say, another king's mentioned by the time we get to the end of it here. Anybody see Darius? Yeah, 4-5. Let's go to 4-4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. They frightened them from building hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So, what are you guys going to go with on this one? Two different kings? Let's look at this. So here is the, the order of kings of Persia. And here's the chapters of Ezra down here in Nehemiah. So Ezra 1 through 6 covers a large chunk of time. It starts with Cyrus in chapter 1. And then we just got Darius mentioned in 4. Some of these others are going to be mentioned as we go down here. By the time Ezra comes on the scene, he comes on in Ezra 7, he says he's sent back by Artaxerxes, which is the fourth in the list on the left. I think there's one king not mentioned, Cambyses. But anyway, he's the fourth one on the list on the left. So what's happened here is Ezra's gone back and he said, here's what happened under these kings as they came and were allowed to go back. They were allowed to rebuild. This, by the way, we won't go into a lot of detail, but it, it corresponds with Daniel and Chronicles as well. This is how it would have been laid out. A little bit closer how it would have been laid out in the Hebrew Bible. Remember, Chronicles ends the Hebrew Bible. The original Hebrew manuscripts have Chronicles at the end. So, what king is it? Well, it's clear that Cyrus lets them go back. The question is, in that last verse I just read to you, is that just sort of looking forward? That we had problems when Cyrus let us go back with these Samaritans? And we continue to have problems for a long time with these people, even under Darius, the next king. But the temple was built, I think, just under the reign of Cyrus. Just under the reign of Cyrus. So you want to pick a year. You can pick 538, 537, 536. Uh, somewhere in that time, the setting of that section occurs. Yes. Stopped, so wouldn't Darius have been the king and it resumed? 
Yeah, I would say that Darius is the king when that la the last segment is completed. But three, one through four, five is under Cyrus. So he's the one who gives the decree to go back. A lot of the work is done under him up until four, five. And I think Darius is that transition in four, five that mentions Darius. And you're right, by the time we get to six, Darius is confused, right? He doesn't know what's going on. He's got to see what his, I think it was his father. It may, might have been his grandfather, Cyrus. And he's got to make sure that the great Cyrus has actually allowed this to happen. So before we get to chapter 5, though, we have to deal with this section. The historical setting of 4, 6 through 23. This is an important one. This we'll talk more about next week. Helps us see how Nehemiah is connected to Ezra. So we just read up to 4, 5, 4, 6. Now in the reign of Ahusaris, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, all these guys here, uh, wrote to Artaxerxes, the text, the letter that was written in Aramaic and translated, then a copy of the letter. So let's go back to our chart here. Lance just reminded us that at chapter 5, was that the end of chapter 5, Lance? Mm -hmm. chapter five, at the end of chapter 5, we have Darius searching the records. But here in chapter 4, we've got these two guys being mentioned who are getting letters. These are the rulers. Did Ezra get confused? Is this a made-up book? You see how liberals love this. You guys see the argument here? So Darius here, he's in chapter 5. And Cyrus is basically 1 through most of 3 and into 4. Then why do we have these two guys mentioned in chapter 4? Completely out of chronological order. Is this just a book sort of thrown together later? Or, like many places in the Bible, has God put it there for a reason? What's the topic under discussion in these chapters? What's the issue? What's the problem? People keep writing letters to the king, right? And so he starts off talking about that um, in chapter 4. And we come to 5. A letter was sent to Cyrus, even until Darius. Then Ezra says, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and write out all these problems we have in the next few paragraphs. Then I'll go back and get in chronological order. So he's just going to go forward and say, look, it didn't stop in the time of Darius. It also went on. There's a letter to Ahasuerus. There was a letter to Artaxerxes. That's going to be put into the text of chapter 4. Now, chapter 5, let's get back on the timeline. Let's get back on the timeline. So that section in chapter 4 is going to help us when we get to Nehemiah. I'll talk more about that next week. Before 6 through 23, what do you think? Is it chronologically accurate? Is Ezra just writing in code and he really is talking about the guy whose name's left out when he mentions these two other kings? Is that really Cambyses who came be between? So that is Cambyses is right here. In between there. Not mentioned in the Bible. Was Ezra just giving a sort of a code name for Cambyses? And then all these other views. He's not historically confused. What do you think the answer is going to be? E. It's a parenthesis. Like in 614, recording continued opposition. So what's the deal? Look, I'm on this topic now. Ezra says I'm going to keep writing about all this opposition we have. Then I'll come back to the chronology and move forward. So remember in the Bible, you're trying to track the chronology it doesn't always go 
this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Most of the time it does in the historical books, even in the Gospels. Most of the time what we're seeing in the Gospel accounts, Jesus did this and then he did this. But if you try to compare Matthew to Luke, what's going to happen? Or John? It's all going to be different because some of those writers will move things around, especially Luke, to make a point. He's not saying, take my book chronologically and get upset when I've moved it around. Luke says, I set about to write an account of Jesus and all that he did. God has inspired him to reorder some things. Same with Matthew. Matthew's generally in chronological order. So that's our uh, class for today. Went just a little bit over. Next week's Nehemiah. And we're gonna make, I'm going to make a big case why Nehemiah and Ezra should be considered one book. Why does it matter? Well, when you're reading it, you should think of it together. Maybe even it should be even one book in our English Bibles, but probably aren't going to change that tradition. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for teaching us, for giving us men like Ezra who cared about proclaiming your word. They wanted your people to know Scripture. And they, they called for more help. Ezra came. May it be that way in the church today. May we call for, for scholars and even good godly academics and pastors and preachers and elders who want to teach the people of God the word of God. So I pray that you would cause us to read your Bible more, even the Old Testament, and learn from it. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.